It's Today in Ohio for a Monday, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and sitting in for Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi. We've got lots to talk about. Before we do, a listener who was catching up pointed out that some time ago, probably in the last two weeks, I mistakenly said that the Detroit Lions and the Browns are in the same division, which is obviously not true. I apologize for the error, and I'm going to blame it on brain fog because I've been fighting off so many viruses. Let's get to it. We've all seen the reports nationally about the ease of stealing Kias and Hyundais. Reporters Molly Walsh and Corey Schaefer took it a look at how the trend is playing out in Northeast Ohio and it is playing out big. Courtney, what did they find? Yeah, big time. So where they kind of started, I think, on this reporting of this story was they started at the city impound lot where towed cars go if they've been stolen. You know, it's just the city impound lot. And right there, the numbers kind of paint a picture of how this is hitting Northeast Ohio. From November 21 to January 22, of the 2,500 some vehicles in the impound lot, about 500 of them were Kias or Hyundais. Now, fast forward a year, the same time frame, November 22, um, you know, coming more recent, out of 2,900 vehicles in the lot, 1,300 or so were Kias and Hyundais. And according to Prosecutor Mike O'Malley's office, the number of these vehicles stolen in Cuyahoga County jumped more than 233% between October and December. And when you look at December's numbers, about 660 alone were stolen just in December. So this is a growing trend. Like you said, it's nationally, it, it's it's come out of social media and the ease with which you know thieves can steal these vehicles. They just strip down the steering column, can bust out a back window and make off with them. And, and it's definitely hitting the Cleveland area. Well, there, there, there is apparently a upside to this in that these things are so easy to steal that carjackings are down because you don't have to rouse somebody with a gun to get a joyride. What I don't get about this is this is a disaster for Kia and Hyundai. I mean, who would buy one now? And I mean, and insurance companies have stopped <laughs> insuring them. Why aren't the brands bringing these things in in a massive recall to correct the vulnerability. Yeah, and that's exactly what Prosecutor Michael Malley was kind of hammering home here. This is on the the manufacturers to solve, he said. And it, it has to do with, you know, an immobilizing anti-theft device isn't working properly or isn't in these vehicles. And the, the Hyundai Motors has said they've made immobilizers standard on all vehicles as of November 21, but as you can imagine, all those cars that hit the road before then are are vulnerable. And Hyundai says it's launching a software update that should start to be available in March, no cost to customers to help head head off this problem. But I live in a household with a Hyundai. I know I'm looking over my shoulder whenever I'm driving it around town. Yeah, I, anytime it's out somewhere parked, it's just a target now for thieves. I, I'm surprised. This has been a problem for a while. This didn't just crop up. We we heard there were so many of them going into the impound lot that we wanted to take a look. And you just sit back and think, if you want to continue to sell cars under this brand, the brand should fix it. O'Malley's right. Well, he, Check out the... Yeah, oh, then, go ahead. 
No, just in the meantime, I, we're starting to get a picture of, of folks getting arrested for these crimes. And reporter Corey Schaefer just kind of explained the, the, the cases of two 14-year-old Cleveland boys who are charged in connection with some of these thefts. So prosecutors are, are handling that side of things, but the manufacturer question remains. Yeah, check out the stories. Molly Walsh and Corey Schaefer, they're on Cleveland.com, and you're listening to Today in Ohio. We knew Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost was coming up in the corruption trial of deposed House Speaker Larry Householder, but I don't think we knew how frantic the people who orchestrated the corruption scheme were to get Yost to do their bidding. Layla, what did we learn from the trial late last week? I got to say, these guys are making Dave Yost look pretty good in this case. Uh, FBI agent Blaine Wetzel on Friday testified about First Energy lobbyist Matt Borges's efforts to recruit Yost into the scheming for HB6. And according to the testimony, First Energy hired Borges because, as a former Ohio Republican Party chairman, he was really close to Yost. He was a close political advisor. So it made him the best candidate to engage with Yost directly. And so part of First Energy's strategy to protect House Bill 6 from this repeal campaign was to get Yost to interpret the $1.2 billion nuclear bailout contained in the bill as an appropriation and a tax. Because if they succeeded, that would mean it would not be subject to state referendum laws. The law allows citizen, you know, citizens to put new laws up for a vote, but as, as long as they don't contain an appropriation or a tax, they just need to collect enough voter signatures within a certain time period. But it turned out that the repeal campaign failed to gather enough signatures before there was a deadline in, in late October 2019. So the Yost plan was sort of a, a moot point. But a text that First Energy lobbyist Juan Cespeda sent to Borges on, on the day that DeWine signed HB6 into law showed that this was a huge priority to bring Yost on board. The text said, please get to Yost. And in August, Cespeda said he and Borges were working hard to have Yost deny the signatures. That's a quote. But it's it's uncertain what the attorney general would do. So not sure. It, he's, so Cespedes wrote in a text message, not sure why he's being so matter of fact. <laughs> so Yost, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, these that. guys have got to be just like so ashamed at this. <laughs> like, oh, my God, this is all the dirty laundry. So Yost didn't end up weighing in on the legality of the referendum effort, but he did eventually go public with his concerns about the tactics that were being used by the pro-HB6ers. The campaign, secretly funded with tens of millions of dollars from First Energy, hired petition blockers to follow and disrupt the signature gatherers who were working for the repeal effort. And Yost warned them during a press conference that aggressively harassing the petition gatherers would, would you know, could merit prosecution. So it just seems, you know, this dude was incorruptible through this process. Except, except there was one point in which he communicated, if this didn't involve First Energy, I'd right. be on the front lines of fighting it, which said, you know, I'm in the pocket of First Energy like everybody else. The right thing to do is to fight it, but I don't want to be on the wrong side of First Energy. Like, this trial is is demonstrating day by day by day what's wrong with our government and the people who are paying attention are aghast i'm getting emails from them you should put this on the front page every day you should you should do more thank you for covering this hardly anybody's covering this but then there's a bunch of people that are not paying attention and this is bad stuff yost did the right thing he did not do the wrong thing 
But for him to say, if it, if this didn't involve first energy, I would be taking a different action is distressing. Yeah, it is. You're, you're right about that. You're right. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Every time Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has the chance to tell consumers, I care about you and your utility prices by putting a consumer representative on the Public Utilities Commission, he fails. Who is his latest appointee, Lisa, and what is his background? Yeah, Governor DeWine chose John Williams to fill the vacancy left by departing Commissioner Beth Trombold. Now, John Williams is a PUCO lifer. He's really been working with PUCO since 2002 in several jobs. He started out as a gas line inspector. He has a civil engineering degree. He's currently the director of PUCO's transportation department since 2018. And prior to his work with PUCO, he was in the natural gas and telecommunications industries. His current salary as the uh, transportation department director is $136,000 a year. But as a PUCO commissioner, he could earn anywhere from almost uh, $74,000 to $213,000 a year plus benefits. But his salary has not been finalized at this point. Uh, Williams uh, must be confirmed by the Ohio Senate. Interestingly enough, he has no party affiliation. So that's kind of an interesting choice by DeWine. I believe the other two nominees were Democrats. And in a statement, uh, DeWine said that uh, Williams' experience, uh, regulatory experience in energy, telecommunications, and transportation will ensure that Ohio maintains competitive and reliable utility marketplace. I don't know anything about this guy except that he's a lifer at the PUCO, which the first energy corruption proves is is broken. The PUCO has not worked for Ohioans forever. It works for the utilities. It's been in the pocket of the utilities. It's gross. It needs to have a sea change. And and instead of putting somebody in, uh, symbolically even, to say, I want to change things, he puts in the lifer. He's basically saying, I got no problem with what's been going on with Ohio utility regulation even though it's involved in the biggest corruption scheme in the history of the state. It's just sad that that people are not paying closer attention to this. This is not the way to go. To be fair, though, I, I think we should give him the benefit of the doubt. As you said, we don't know anything about him. I assume we'll start digging into that to see who he is. But he kind of is kind of, you know, he started kind of at the bottom and moved up through, uh, you know, he, he wasn't like a, I don't know. We'll see. He moved up through a broken no system. It's like, <laughs> all right, we'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Ohio legislature passed a bill late last year to prohibit cities from regulating tobacco, but Governor Mike DeWine vetoed it. Now Cleveland is moving to ban flavored tobacco products. Courtney, why is Cleveland doing that? Yes, like you said, this was only made possible by the governor's veto, um, but Cleveland is is looking to combat its its high smoking rate, right? So I talked to the public health director at the city, Dr. David Margolius, and he told me this the city's smoking rate is between 30 and 35%. That puts us in first place among the US's largest cities and and compare that to the national average of 12.5%. So Cleveland's not doing too hot in this category and the city wants to take it on. And and the doctor told me, you know, it's not like this issue's been completely ignored in Cleveland, but it it clearly hasn't been prioritized, he said, and the city's looking to change that. 
So this proposed ban, which it would take a few months to go into effect once and if council signs off on it, it would it would bar the sale of any flavored tobacco products at Cleveland stores. So that includes menthol cigarettes and that includes flavored vape products. The goal here is, you know, the city is looking at the disproportionate effect that tobacco use has here on communities of color. Black residents, Latino residents are more likely to have ads targeted at them. The LGBTQ community is also um, a target of, of big tobacco, the, dark, the doctor said. And really the goal here is to stop getting kids to start in the first place. And flavored tobacco products have long been discussed as kind of that, that, that gateway into smoking. I was really surprised by the high rate that was in the story, that more than a third of Cleveland is smoking. Did that surprise anybody mm-hmm. else? Not, not particularly. I mean, you go to other big U.S. cities and people don't smoke, you know, and, and here you see people all over the place doing it. You do. You see a lot of people smoking in Cleveland. I guess I'm just not running in those circles because I don't feel like I see as much of it. Uh, but it is, it ha- the, all of the, a lot of the flavored stuff has been aimed at youth. Uh, it is what the tobacco companies have a history of doing, trying to get you young, get you hooked. The vaping companies followed that suit. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the legislature makes another run at stopping cities from doing this because <laughs> they favor the tobacco companies over the health of city residents. It was a stupid bill that they passed and the governor rightfully and quickly vetoed it. And, and, you know, we saw Columbus move on this kind of ban in December. So it's not just Cleveland out there. If the legislature's not pleased, um, there's definitely something they can they can target. But in the meantime, the city of Cleveland wants to, you know, enforce this ban essentially through through a, a registration of, of tobacco retailers. They'd have to pay for a license annually, I believe about $500. And that opens the door for public health inspectors to come inside, do inspections in the process of renewal or maintaining that license. And, you know, they have to have signage, they have to enforce the ban against, you know, that the city passed a few years ago that those between 18 and and 21 can't, you know, the the age for tobacco here is 21. So this really gets health inspectors in the door to enforce these various measures. Who on council is the chief proponent of this? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure how the council political, you know, dynamic is going to fall on this. There is sure to be some outcry. You know, the doctor said that in, in other cities like this, there's a lot of big tobacco kind of supporting local organizations to oppose this. There's a discussion of menthol use in the black community and how this is targeting the black community. So we'll have to see how those kind of national debates play out at the local level here in the, in the coming weeks and months. All right. You're listening to today in Ohio reporter, Caitlin Durbin sat down with County executive Chris Ronane a month into his term to explore his vision for Cuyahoga County what did she report, Layla? Ronane laid out his goals for this first year of his term, and they focus on finally achieving some of the things that the county has really struggled to do on, in recent years. And high on his list are finally figuring out how to ensure humane detention for inmates at the county jail and ensuring safe housing for displaced kids who have been staying nights at the Jane Edna Hunter Social Service Building. 
on the jail, he 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 wouldn't say yet whether his plan involves renovating some part of the existing facility or building new elsewhere in the county. But he said it probably is going to be a hybrid. This you know it, a hybrid model that reuses the the younger jail two housing pod in addition to building a new smaller but expandable facility. And he he foreshadowed that he'll be making an announcement about these plans soon, and and that those that announcement will include some recommendations for where a new facility could be built and what it could look like, how much it would cost, and that sort of thing. How it would be funded? But he, he he's ruled out the toxic site on Transport Road. Rest assured, <laughs> that was you know <laughs> big subject of controversy last year, and he he reiterated that. Um, if the notion of extending the quarter percent sales tax to pay for the jail gets resurrected, that he will put that to voters to decide. And he's also tracking where cases are getting jammed up in the criminal justice system and hoping to make a plan around alleviating those issues to prevent crowding at the jail in the first place. On the issue of kids, he said he'll be building out even more housing capacity to prevent kids from having to stay the night at at the social services building. The county is right now contemplating an $11 million deal to secure eight beds at the Centers for Families and Children, and they can't not, under that contract, they would not be allowed to turn kids away for any reason. And then to help fill in the remaining housing gap, Ronane appears to be taking up a plan that Budish laid out before he left that'll convert the county-owned Metzenbaum building into a permanent residential drop-off center for kids. And so Ronane said he he wants to build group homes and other specialized housing facilities within neighborhoods to help shelter some of the 3,000 kids in county care. I like the way he has started out. He's been dropping in unannounced to meet with county employees and see their different offices. If he if he announces he's coming, it becomes a dog and pony show and right. you don't get the, the authentic experience. But you, you need to hear from the people that are running these services to find out what they think the deficiencies are and what their needs are. And so he has been very busy doing a lot of that. And I, that's important to before you say concretely, here's what I'm going to do. You want to hear from as many people as you can who may not have been heard before. Uh, So this was a story that didn't have a lot of ironclad specifics of what he's going to do, but it really explained what his thought process is, right? Yeah. Well, and it also kind of uh, shores up his campaign promises. You know, there were a lot of things he said on the campaign. It's good to know that he is maintaining some fidelity to that. And the focus on children, we all know that that's probably the single most important thing we can do in this county right now. Too many kids are mm-hmm. being lost. And he he very quickly made that clear. I'm focused on the kids. Right, so right. it's a good start. It, it's got a long way to go. He's got a lot of uh, knuckles, you know, bare knuckle fighting ahead with county council and others because this is the big leagues. But so far, he's shown some good sense. It's Today in Ohio. ATF Director Steve Dettelbach returned to Northeast Ohio last week, and he brought some good news for those looking to reduce gun violence. Lisa, what's he going to bring yeah, here? Dettelbach, who is a Cleveland native and a former assistant U.S. attorney, is working to establish a crime gun intelligence center in Cleveland, and he's already in talks with Cleveland police officials about doing that. So these centers use data from crime scenes to identify violent criminals and guns used at crimes. They take like things like 
guns, bullet casings, and other forensic evidence from crime scenes. And they use that to spot trends that help them identify those that are most likely to commit a violent gun crime. Analysts crunch this data and they report it to daily meetings of feds, local law enforcement, and prosecutors. Currently, there are 24, about 24 centers in the United States. There's one in Columbus and they recently expanded theirs. And Cleveland would, would be one of five cities in a pilot program that Dettelbach is interested in for an application that extracts gun data from crime scenes, feeds it to a federal database within seconds, and that would help them trace guns a lot faster. Um, Dettelbach says in an era of shrinking police forces, which we've seen that here in Cleveland, you can't afford not to use data and other information to solve crimes. And interestingly enough, you know, last week when we had our editorial board meeting with Mayor Justin Bibb, he was talking about putting civilian data people at the five police districts to, you know, use data. So this is something that we're already thinking of on a local level. I don't get why we don't have this already. We're one of the cities most beset by gun violence. And I was surprised in in reading this story, how many cities have these already? And we didn't. I wonder if there was some kind of difficulty here that we're not aware of, some kind of conflict that got in That would be an interesting backstory because, yeah, you're right. I mean, I would think Cleveland would be near the top of the list of a a data-driven center like this, but... Yeah, well, it's good news that it's coming. I I have a feeling it's partly because Steve is from here and uh, we know him well. So good for him to bring that to Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Layla, why is Cuyahoga County paying Nyla Bird two bull salaries? So this is a bit of a head scratcher, I think. Nyla Bird was recently named Deputy Chief of Staff responsible for developing and implementing the county's long-term strategy for public safety and justice services. And that includes the jail, sheriff's department, medical examiner's office. It's a massive full-time job. But she also has another massive full-time job. She's the county clerk of clerk of courts. And that's the official record keeper for the county's Court of Common Pleas General Division, the Domestic Relations Division, and the Court of Appeals, 8th District, district, uh, Appellate District. Um, And that's managing a budget of $8 million. And it appears she's getting paid both salaries for these two full-time jobs. When she was only the clerk under former Executive Armin Budish, she was earning $163,000 a year. And then her salary jumped to nearly one ninety by the end of 2022. And today she's earning $219,000, and she also gets a separate stipend of a little more than $12,000 that's paid by the, the state for her work with the appellate court. And that brings her total current compensation to $231,000, uh, And except for seven forensic pathologists who work in the medical examiner's office, and they have medical degrees. The, the only other employee whose salary exceeds birds is Ron Johnson, the county's chief information officer. He makes $254,000 a year. So Bird oh. reports to Ronane's chief of staff, but his salary falls below hers. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's just sort of interesting. I, I mean, I guess what we were discussing the other day is how can someone perform both of these jobs to the fullest of their ability? Each one is, is a full-time gig. Although I guess it's not two full salaries, because if we had two separate people getting this, it would add up to way more than she's making, right? I, 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 I guess you're right, but but how can someone be doing both jobs? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Can I jump in, guys? Yes. Yeah, I, I just, you know, Chris Ronane is out here saying the jail, 
and is among his, his biggest priorities, right? The public safety chief is a crucial spot here. It's who the sheriff answers to. That position didn't exist until a few, few years ago. We either need that position or we don't. We either need someone full-time making sure the jail's working out the way it needs to, or we don't. I'm troubled that um, the attention is yeah. split here. Yeah, it, it's very strange. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Bird. I, I mean, I think she has a decent reputation and works hard. I just don't understand what the thinking is here unless it's super temporary and they have somebody waiting in the wings and this is, they just did this as some interim thing to end quickly. Mm. We really didn't get a good answer from the county, did we, Layla? No, no. They they say they're evaluating it. It's really unclear what they're going to do if they're going to, you know, if, if Ronane plans on on finding someone else to be the clerk. But you know, for now, they put out a statement that says she's going to continue performing both roles for the time being, and they believe in her capability to handle it all. I'll be interested to see if the county council, their next chance that they ask some questions about this, because Courtney's right. The, the jail is a priority, so how can you do this? Interesting stuff. It's Today in Ohio. What is the African-American Civil Rights Trail and how many Cleveland sites might be on it? Lisa, this was a Susan Glazer story. It told us a bunch of things we really hadn't known. Yeah, the Civil Rights Trail was established by the Cleveland Restoration Society. It debuted in 2022, and they worked with this historian, Aaron Fountain, to you know uh, work this trail out. Sites were chosen by public nominations, and scholars made the final recommendations from that list. It is the first Civil Rights Trail in the northern United States. Uh, the executive director of the Restoration Society, uh, I just lost my place, Kathleen Crowther, says that civil rights didn't just happen in the South, and our city played a big role in civil rights. They got a $50,000 grant from the National Park Service to fund Ohio historical markers for these uh, spots along the trail. They've put three up so far. So right now there are seven uh, stops on the trail. They're hoping to expand it to 10 later on. They're, they're all on the east side of Cleveland. Three of them are churches, Cora United Methodist on East 105th, Greater Abyssinia Baptist, which is right across the street from Cora United on 105th. There was the site of the Huff Uprising in 1966, which was at Huff Avenue and East 79th Street outside of a bar where it all started. Um, Glenville High School at 152nd in St. Clair is on there. I I did not know this, but Glenville High hosted Martin Luther King Jr.'s Rise Up speech in April of 1967. Also, Carl Stokes, the first black mayor elected to a major city in 1967, so that would be Cleveland City Hall, and the Ludlow Community Association, which was formed after the garage of a black couple was bombed in the early 50s. So Ludlow is a school in the Shaker School District, but it's right on the Shaker-Cleveland border. So some Cleveland kids go to that as well. I would like to maybe put in a plug for my grandfather, Dr. Charles H. Garvin. I wonder if his house on Wade Park Avenue should be on the Civil Rights Trail because he was the first black person to build a house in Wade Park Avenue and he his porch got bombed before the house was finished. And I've often thought about trying to get a historical marker there, but I wonder if it could be part of this trail. It definitely should be, and that's something that we ought to start to campaign on. Susan's story was a, a kickoff to our Black History Month coverage. It was a great way to start it. Check out her story. It's on cleveland.com, and it was in Sunday's Plain Dealer. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
What's the story behind Sniff Spot? Basically an outdoor Airbnb for dogs. Courtney, this one came out of nowhere and just floored me. I'd never heard of anything like it. Yeah, same. And I, um, you know, the way you described it kind of says it all. It's, it's yards for rent where you can take your dog to and they can run around, you know. Um, and, and this is a, is an online platform that apparently launched in Seattle in 2018. But since then, it's spread out across the country. And, you know, our reporter Gretchen kind of detailed how it's playing out in Northeast Ohio, because folks are definitely doing it in the Cleveland area. She talked to a Strongsville man, Scott Pote, and he's been doing this for a while now. He, he kind of described his yard as, as a pretty good one for dogs to run around and play in. It's it's private. It's fully fenced in. It has a pond they can hop in and, and cool off and swim around in. And, and he kind of sets it up for the humans that come attached with these pups, right? So, he, you know, there's a shady spot to sit down. There's some refreshments, cooler full of water and snacks. And, you know, this is apparently for like the dogs that that don't do well in the in the public parks, like maybe they react to other dogs or, you know, one woman that Gretchen spoke with has a, has a deaf dog. So that, that pooch doesn't respond to her commands. And so she struggles when she takes him to like a public dog park. Yeah. I did this one through me because Gretchen writes are very, she writes very uh, involved health stories. She's got a great way of taking complicated facts, putting it together, which is what we wanted to do. So when it popped up, I was talking to Laura and I said, did you, Design this to, to Gretchen because no, no, she came up with it. She wanted to do it, and Gretchen's a dog lover. There you go. You're listening to Today in Ohio, Courtney. Before we close down, uh, you were we talked last week about how the city broke the law in not letting us attend the public meeting in the city council tour of the police station. I understand there is another tour today. I wonder if it's because of our outrage. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what prompted the city to hold this tour. They're doing a media tour of the proposed site for the new Cleveland Police Headquarters. But I would like to note that last week was a meeting of the city's Public Safety Committee. They went on a tour, and by, um, you know, the media being barred from entering that meeting. It's not so much that we lost out on an opportunity to see the site of the new headquarters. It's that we lost out on council members' first reaction, discussion, of those police headquarters, and you can't recreate that. So the tour today is well and good, but we were still barred from a public. We were, you know, and better watch out for those nails in the floor if you go over there, because <laughs> that's what they claimed was the reason. It was okay for city council members to step on the nails, but not the media. They were looking out for us. That's it for a Monday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to Today in Ohio. We'll be back Tuesday with another discussion of the news. 